The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the uh, 4th of August 2020 and um, for Teisho this evening I'm going to read um, an interview with um, a, an American poet. His name is uh, Ross Gay and the, and the name of the article is Tending Joy and Practicing Delight. And this is something that uh, Robin mentioned in the, the Green Network that was sent out last month. Um, and I'm uh, very grateful for the reference because he's a, he's a real discovery as a poet. He's a great poet. And um, he has a lot to teach us. Um, just a little bit about him. Um, he lives in, uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, where he's a professor of English at Indiana University. Um, and uh, his book, include a poetry collection, catalogue of unabashed gratitude, um, and a book of essays, the Book of Delights. And he also co-founded something called the Tenderness Project, um, together with uh, somebody called Shayla Lawson. Um, my teacher used to say, probably still does, that gratitude is one of the most exalted of emotions, and um, this this really uh, comes out in in uh, Roscoe's uh, poetry. Um, and the the this article is a little bit kind of exploring um, this unusual um, facility he has to see to to delight in what is around him and to um, Experiencing things, experience um, much with a great deal of gravity, of, of gratitude, in spite of all the the uh, pain and difficulty there is that he also witnesses. And um, this this particular interview um, is uh, found on a website called On Being. And it's a it's a repeat. It was first aired on their I guess they have a, a podcast or a radio program um, in 2019, about about a year ago, um, and then was was um, sort of re-promoted in the light of um, COVID pandemic, and with with the idea that. Um, Um, it's hard. It's hard for for many of us these days to um, find much delight. And the, in the in the sort of the preamble to the interview, um, the interviewer uh, Krista Tippett um, says, "To be with gay is to train your gaze to see the wonderful alongside the terrible, to attend to and meditate on what you love." even in the midst of difficult realities and as a part of working for justice.
again, this is part, part of the uh, preamble, there's a question floating around the world right now. How can we be joyful in a moment like this? To which Ross Gay responds in word and deed, how can we not be joyful, especially in a moment like this? Apart from being a, a writer and a professor and a former um, uh, college football player, he, he is also a gardener and, and you see that his, um, his garden work um, figures large in his poetry. Uh, it says also, we practice tenderness and mercy in part because to understand that we are all suffering is one quality of what Ross Gay calls adult joy. Um, to understand that we are all suffering. Um, we, go, we go, if we look deeply, um, if, we, if we take up the, period, the practice seriously, we, we go pretty quickly from just being caught up in our own suffering to seeing that that everyone, not just everyone, but every being wants to avoid suffering and experience joy. But I think it's to fair to say that we, we tend to focus on the dukkha, the, the suffering part, and perhaps not spend so much time exploring sukha or happiness. a long interview so we'll just be picking out the, the bits that pertain to, to uh, practice the Dharma. So the so interviewer Tippett asks him about um, this this um, how much joy there is in his, his work. She says I feel like your entire body of work and what you're articulating as you also navigate this moment we live in is a response to um, that suffering. And it is strangely countercultural to see joy, I would say, as just a simplified way. And I want you to expand on it but to see joy as a calling precisely in a moment like this. And here's how he responds, responds. That's the thing. Sometimes I think it's a conception of joy as meaning something like easy. And to me, joy has nothing to do with ease. And joy has everything to do with the fact that we're all going to die. When I'm thinking about joy, I'm thinking about that at the same time as something as wonderful is happening, some connection is being made in my life, we are also in the process of dying. That is every moment. That is every moment. Uh, this um, reminds me of uh, one of the teachings in uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. It's called
called the, the four thoughts that turn the mind. And the first one is that human life is precious, this human life of leisure and opportunity is um, a unique one in that we can practice the Dharma in this, in this human life. The second one is impermanence. And the, if we really appreciate impermanence, it, it puts an edge on everything. To every every uh, time we experience something to, to see its ephemerality, She asks then for him to explain further about, about um, um, connection. He says, The connection between dying and the joy, well, a part of it is just the simple fact that the ephemerality of, and maybe this is a little veering off, but there this, is this thing that if you and I know we're each in the process, and he means of dying, there is something that will happen between us. There is some kind of tenderness that might be possible. It's not always going to happen because I might just get scared and do something else, but there's that potential, I think, for some kind of tenderness. And this is the thing that's been interesting about writing my Delights book. And this book um, of, of essays, of short essays, came out of a promise that... Um, Ross Gay made, made to himself that he was going to write something every day starting on his 42nd birthday and going through until his 43rd. Um, every day his discipline was to write something that about something that delighted him. So it was a real, it was a real um, exercise in, in um, uh, remembering and I guess um, in fact, he didn't do it absolutely every day. He missed one or two, but um, he found it to be um, very revealing. He says, and this is the thing that's been interesting about writing my Delights book, is that it has articulated for me a way that, oh, my question is joy. My question that I could see that that's a life question is, what is this joy? Or how joy? But in the process of thinking about it, I have really been thinking that joy is the moments. For me, the moments when my alienation from people, but just not, not just from people, but for the whole thing, it goes away and it shrinks. If it was a visible thing, then everything becomes luminous. I think it's a fairly common experience people have when they sit many hours of, of, of zazen that um, at a certain point um, the world starts to shine. It kind of can, can creep up on you, but, but suddenly you can look around and things are more luminous. And of course... It's not that things have suddenly got more luminous. It's that our vision has uh, cleared. There are, less, there are less clouds in the way. And I love that mycelium, forest metaphor, 
that there's this thing connecting us. This is a reference to fairly recent discovery um, that that there is this vast network under the ground of fungus, mycelium, um, through which t trees can um, communicate with each other and uh, share nutrients even. And among the things of that thing connecting us is that we have this common experience, many common experiences, but a really foundational one is that we are not here forever. And that's a joining. And then he adds a joining, spelling the joy with a Y, J-O-Y-ning. So that's sort of how I think about it. This interviewer asks, um, so what surprised you in the process of moving through that year and moving through that year looking for delight and writing about delight every day? He replies, many things surprised me, I suppose, but one of the things that surprised me was how quickly the study of delight made delight more evident. It was really quick. And I wasn't sure. I was a little bit like, this is going to be hard to just have something delightful happen every day. Then he laughs. The interviewer says, you said somewhere that you developed a delight radar or a delight muscle. Well, it seems to me it's kind of the inverse or the opposite experience from going to the therapist every week where you're saving up the things that illustrate your neurosis and you were doing the opposite. Exactly, exactly. And it's fun. It was fun. And then the interviewer asks, well, what did you notice that gave you delight? I realized over the course of, of the writing the book how much I love, and I have a title of one of the pieces in there, but it's like, how do I say it? Physical contact that is pleasant, unambiguously pleasant. Public physical interactions, I think is what I called it. I love how frequently I'm in the presence of sweet little interactions that don't have to happen, but that do have to happen. I guess some that I notice, just these ordinary things, like seeing two people sharing the burden of carrying a shopping bag or a sack of laundry, how they are helping each other and how their bodies are adjusting to one another. We, we so often we miss these little, little things. Two people sharing a shopping bag. There's, there's a, a harmony in that. Um, a oneness, or we could say, if we use a Zen term, a not-to-ness. And yet, so often we, we're so caught up in, in thoughts about, about self and other that we, we miss these little signs of the ways in which um, 
things work together, the way they function. I think sometimes about that phrase, made my day. And I think we have the power with our words and with all kinds of small gestures like that. Even somebody being really nice in a checkout line or you being nice to somebody in a checkout line after the last two were really rude to them and you watch a transformation take place that you made, that their day was getting broken and you made it. What an incredible power we have to walk through the world making somebody's day. I think the checkout is a good example to use because there are so many things conspiring, so many pressures conspiring for it to be a very impersonal, um, alienated kind of uh, interaction. Um, I think in most of the big um, shops, the big uh, supermarkets, the um, uh, women on the checkout counters are actually, um, they're, they're the speed with which they pack is, is measured and they're um, supposed to be going as fast as they can. It's efficiency is one of the, the gods we worship, worship. and um, it's, it's, it's depersonalising. Can't can't really stop and 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 chat except for ex, you know exchanging the briefest of pleasantries. I know during the um, during the lockdown there were there were um, reports of a lot of um, people at checkouts being abused, and then there was a sort of re- reaction to that where people. Um, realised that um, how important their work was. They were actually um, essential to people's well-being. But to recognise the power we have, these little interactions that seem like nothing um, can, can make a huge difference. goes on um, to talk quite a bit about the community garden he got involved in. It was just a, about a football field-sized piece of land that was handed over to a group of people wanting to create a, um, an orchard and uh, taking this very compacted soil and, and turning it into, into um, f- fertile ground for this, this Orchard. Um, and he goes on to say, it's not the the quantity of, of food that this this acre um, produces. It's not like it's solving food security issues for anybody, but um, it was creating something 
uh, alive and and open to anybody who wanted to come in, and anybody could come and and pick up um, some fruit to eat. Free food, free fruit for all, food justice and joy projects. How you describe it? You said, you said that when you started growing things, your life got better. For one, it's just fun to be in a garden. For me, dreaming about what could happen, that kind of mystical, mythical space where, oh, sorry, mystical space actually, of trying to figure out what is this thing I could do, could, that this could be in five years, that kind of strange dreaming space that it is. Um, you know, in, for much of, of um, human history and human mythology, paradise, when it is part of a mythology, is um, depicted as a garden. And um, in the in the um, much of the the United States um, uh, inner city neighborhoods. Uh, where African-Americans live are often extremely barren and not only not much, not many trees or, or gardens or parks, um, but also often no fresh food for sale. And so there is a, a big uh, movement in, in the States uh, for food justice to, to bring healthy, um, fresh food into uh, neighborhoods, and um, this is not just confined to America. I heard a news item recently about um, uh, trees in Auckland, and how um, in South Auckland there are many fewer trees than, they are, than there are in other parts of the city. So he saw this, or sees this, this community garden as as he says, a kind of strange dreaming space. We need, we need these dreaming spaces. We need these spaces that don't um, conform to our um, uh, consumerist values. It gives a, a little example of one of his the stories from his um, Book of Delights, and it's called uh, Loitering. Loitering. I'm sitting at a cafe in Detroit where on the door window is the sign with the commands, no soliciting, no loitering stacked like an anvil. I have a fiscal relationship with this establishment, which I developed by buying a coffee and which makes me a patron. 
And so even though I subtly dozed in the late afternoon sun pouring in under the awning, the two bucks spent protects me, at least temporarily, from the designation of loiterer, through, though the dozing, if done long enough or ostentatiously enough, or with enough delight, might transgress me over. The Webster's definition of loiter reads thus, to stand or wait around idly without apparent purpose, and to travel indolently with frequent pauses. Among the synonyms for this behavior are linger, loaf, lays, lounge, lollygaggle, dawdle, amble, sorter, meander, putter, dilly-dally, and mosey. Any one of these words in the wrong frame of mind might be considered a critique or, when nouned, an epithet, lollygagger or loafer. Then the, the, the interviewer questions, is lollygag a Minnesota thing? Because my mum says that all the time. And then he replies, indeed, lollygag was one of the words my mum would use to cajole us while jingling her keys when she was waiting on us, which, judging from the visceral response I had, writing that memory, must have been not quite infrequent. All of these words, to me, imply having a nice day. They imply having the best day. They also imply being unproductive, which leads to being, even if only temporarily, non-consumptive. And this is a crime in America, and more explicitly, explicitly criminal, depending upon any number of quickly apprehended visual clues. For instance, the darker your skin, the more likely you are to be loitering, though a Patagonia jacket could do some work to disrupt that perception. And then he goes on reading from this essay on loitering. A Patagonia jacket, colourful pants, tret-on sneakers with short socks, an Ivy League ball cap and a thick book, not the Bible, and you're almost golden. golden. Almost. There is a Venn diagram someone might design, several of them, that will make visual our constant internal negotiation towards safety. And like the best comedy, it will make us laugh hard before saying, Lord. And he's pointing here to the fact that, that if you're a, a, a black man, you spend quite a bit of time imagining how you might appear to police in terms of how you're dressing, as this has a bearing on your on your own safety. Whether you get moved on for loitering or worse. It occurs to me that laughter and loitering are kissing cousins as both bespeak an interruption of production and consumption. And it's probably for this reason that I have been among groups of non-white people laughing hard who have been shushed in a Cordoba in Bloomington, in a bar in Fishtown, in the Harvard Club at Harvard. The shushing perhaps reminds how threatening to the order are our bodies in non-productive, non-consumptive delight. The moment of laughter that not only makes consumption impossible, you might choke, but if the laugh is hard enough, if the talk is just right, food or drink may fly from your mouth. If not, and this hurts, your nose. 
and if your body is supposed to be one of the consumables, if it has been, if it is one of the consumables around which so many ideas of production and consumption have been structured in this country, well, there you go. And of course, this, this being a body, being a consumable, he's talking about uh, slavery here. There is a Carrie Mae Weems photograph of a woman in what looks like to be some kind of textile factory with an angel embroidered to the left breast of her shirt where her heart resides. The woman, like the angel, has her arms splayed wide, almost in ecstasy, as though to embrace everything. So in the midst of her glee is she. Every time I see that photo, after I smile and have a genuine bodily opening on account of witnessing this delight, which is a moment of black delight, I look behind her for the boss. Uh-oh, I think, you're in a moment of non-productive delight. Heads up. Which points to another of the synonyms for loitering, which I almost wrote as delight. Taking one's time. For while the previous list of symptoms allude to time, taking one's time makes it kind of plain. For the crime of loitering, the idea of it is about ownership of one's own time, which must be sometimes wrested from the assumed owners of it, who are not you, back to the rightful, who is. And while having interpolated the policing of delight, such that I am on the lookout for the overseer, even in photos I have studied hundreds of times, on the lookout always for the policer of delight, my work is studying this kind of glee, being on the lookout for it, and aspiring to it, floating away from the factory as she seems to be. I can think of delight and laughter as a, as a kind of non-violent rebellion against oppression. To, to um, have the freedom of spirit to be able to um, find the humor in a situation to experience delight, even when um, in a, a hard, repetitive job like, like factory work. Um, the interviewer goes on to say, I wanted to talk to you about justice and about how you grip, grapple with that reality, that aspiration, that concept. You have brought together the idea of longing for justice and working for justice, but also exalting the beautiful and tending to what one loves as much as one must fight. So here's something you wrote somewhere. Often, I think the gap in our speaking about and for justice, or working for justice, is that we forget to advocate for what we love, for what we find beautiful and necessary. We are good at fighting, but imagining and holding in one's imagination what is wonderful and to be adored and preserved and exalted is hardest for us, it seems. In a sense, this is the role that poets can play for us, is to highlight and express vividly what um, is beautiful 
and and help us to hold what is what is wonderful in our imagination to to remind ourselves of our of our deeper aspirations not so much just our likes and dislikes but but the values that that um, guide us and shape us the interviewer goes on to talk about um, how um, she well, she contrasts journalism with his development development of a delight radar or a delight muscle by saying that journalism often has a despair radar which um, can be disempowering. Uh, it's, we, we need to be careful about what we expose ourselves to because um, much of the media... Um, just sees the negative. He's also started off um, a project called the Tenderness Project, which you can you can um, go online and see. Um, it's it's basically um, a website where people post um, short pieces about um, tender moments that they've experienced. It can be writing or film or poetry. Um, He says, it can be an essay or a poem or a little film or something, but it's just small. I get a lot of emails that are not, here's the a tenderness. A lot of them are like, watch out, when you see this one, it says, here is a tenderness. Like, a tenderness. It's like, oh, wow, that's okay. It's a softer place in us. That's the part that I get interested in. Sometimes we're probably sceptical of it and we defend against it in ourselves and others, for sure. But I love the word tender because it implies the softness. I would say the vulnerability. It also applies one who tends. It also is an exchange. So tender is many things. To be tender, to be engaged in tenderness is many things. And those things are, they also imply, I think, an other. If you're tender, you're tender because you know there are other things. There are other people. You could say that the tenderness he's, he's talking about is the, the opposite of hard-heartedness, the heart that doesn't receive anything that doesn't embrace anything I think here of 
of Master Dogen when, when he was asked what the aim of the Buddha way was. He said, if you can say any aim, a tender heart. He gives an example when he, of what he thinks of when he thinks of tenderness of a time when he and his father um, didn't get along and they could hardly talk to each other. Um, but his father couldn't resist um, just putting his hand on his son's head and, and ruffling his hair. He couldn't help but touch him. And he, he remembers this now with, with tenderness. go on to talk about um, uh, mercy, which he also uh, writes around and, and with quite a lot. And the interviewer says, how can you use a word like mercy right now, being a black man and doing nothing wrong and having to constantly worry about what's going to happen if you see a policeman, for example? He replies, I don't know, you know, that piece remains a puzzle to me. And what in, what's interesting to me about that essay is that there aren't answers. This is an essay he wrote on, ten, on uh, mercy. There is a fundamental question, which is, we ought to know each other better. It's so simple, really. Um, so much of, of racism... Um, is ignorance. And this is a, is a, is a move we can make to, to learn more about each other. There's no answer, but there's a move. I mean, here's a little bit of piece of it. What if we honestly assessed what we have come to believe about ourselves and each other and how those beliefs shape our lives. And oh, what if we did it with generosity and forgiveness? What if we did it with mercy? And you're talking about really hard, inexcusable things in our history and our present. You think in, in the history of the, um, uh, the United States, actually that was the, the, the interviewer talking um, slavery, injustice, lynchings, police brutality now. Really hard things to face in our history. And, and in New Zealand too, we, we, we have our own hard things. Colonisation, confiscation of land, um, imposition of, of Pākehā value, values. all different kinds of institutions we can see this, this the suffering that this 
create. But if we can if we can turn around and look at these hard things, just as in our own lives we have these things. He writes the corrupt imagination might become visible, inequalities might become visible, violence might become visible, terror might become visible, and the things we've been doing to each other, despite the fact that we want to, don't want to do such things to each other, might become visible. If we don't, we will all remain phantoms, and as it turns out, it's hard for phantoms to care about one another, let alone one, love one another. Phantoms, you know, and you could say that in the unenlightened life is a life of, of being a phantom. It's we don't see things clearly, we don't experience them directly. It's why we use the term to wake up to describe what we're doing in practice. Come alive. Now another short um, section from from um, an essay from the Book of Delights. Among the most beautiful things I've ever heard anyone say came from my student Bethany, talking about her pedagogical aspirations or ethos, how she wanted to be as a teacher and what she wanted her classrooms to be. She said, "If." What if we joined our wildernesses together? Sit with that for a minute. That the body, that life, might carry a wilderness, an unexplored territory, and that yours and mine might somewhere, somehow meet, might even join. And what if the wilderness, perhaps the densest wild in there, thickets, bogs, swamps, uncrossable ravines and rivers, have I made the metaphor clear, is our sorrow, or to use Smith's term, the intolerable. It astonishes me sometimes, no, often, how every person I get to know, everyone, regardless of everything, by which I mean everything, lives with some profound personal sorrow. Brother addicted, mother murdered, Dad died in surgery, rejected by their family. Cancer came back, evicted. Fetus not okay. Everyone, regardless, always, of everything. Not to mention the existential sorrow we all might be afflicted with, which is that we and what we love will soon be annihilated. Which sounds more dramatic than it might. Let me just say, dead. Is this sorrow of which our impending being no more might be the foundation, the great wilderness?
we're running out of time. Um, just finish off um, with a beautiful short poem from his catalogue of unabashed gratitude volume. I think it's from that one anyway. Could be another. It's called Becoming a Horse. It was dragging my hands along its belly, losing the bit and wiping the spit from its mouth that made me a snatch of grass in the thing's maw, a fly tasting its ear. It was touching my nose to his that made me know the clover's bloom, my wet eye to his that made me know the long field's secrets. But it was putting my heart to the horses that made me know the sorrow of horses made me forsake my thumbs for the sheen of unshod hooves. And it is this way drop my torches. And in this way drop my torches. And in this way drop my knives. Feel the small song in my chest swell. And my coat glisten and twitch. And my face grow long. And these words cast off at last for the slow, honest tongue of horses. Just finish with um, something that uh, philosopher and theologian Howard Thurman said. I used this in the session I was leading last week. He's a civil rights leader who was a mentor for for um, um, Martin Luther King Jr. He says, "Don't ask yourself what the world needs." Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number I vow to Endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number Endless blind passion, I vow to uproot Dharma gaze beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to honor.
The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.